At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. As we gather here today and as we prepare to worship for Easter, I just want to ask this question. How many of you does Easter kind of sneak up on you every year? It's that holiday that just suddenly happens. Is that, is anybody in this room that, okay, we got at least a couple of people. Thank you so much for being so brave as to, as to share that. My, my guess is that there are others that Easter sneaks up on. Maybe not every year, but some years. See, when you live in America, Christmas seldom sneaks up on you, right? And why is that? That's because Santa shows up at Walmart on Labor Day, right? It's almost impossible to miss. And Christmas is always on the same day. It's always on December the 25th. Easter is that, that day that can sneak up on us because sometimes it's in April and sometimes it's in March. And so for a number of reasons, Easter can kind of sneak up on us. Well, I don't want it to sneak up on us as a church family this year because Easter is not something that snuck up on history. Easter is actually something that was very well planned and orchestrated. It was intentional. Our Heavenly Father set in motion a plan from all time that culminated in the events of Easter. It was no accident. And so Easter should not be accidental for us as well. And so we are going to be looking this morning at this great truth that Easter was not an accident. And we're going to do so by looking at Luke chapters 9 through 22 as a backdrop in the context around which we look at the events of Palm Sunday. So this is what we're going to do this morning. Now, some of you are like, oh boy, we're going to read that many chapters today. Um, We're not going to look at every verse in these chapters, but I want us to see something as we move our way through these chapters that will help us understand more of what was happening when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. So we're going to see two things today as we look at these verses. The first thing I want us to see is this. Easter was no accident. Easter was no accident. Now we're going to see that by looking at these chapters in Luke. But even before we get there, I want to set the stage by reminding us of an amazing truth about Jesus Christ. Jesus has always been. Jesus did not begin his existence when he was born in Bethlehem. No, Bethlehem was an arrival. It was not a beginning because Jesus has no beginning. He is eternal. We see this in the Gospels in places like John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. And so these three verses begin John's gospel by reminding us that Jesus had no beginning. He's eternal. Everything was created through him. He has always been. 
Now, not only has he always been, but this plan of redemption that God had to to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to himself, this is something that God has been planning for a very, very long time. As a matter of fact, God had a plan ready as soon as sin entered the world so that we might be reconciled to him. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15. After Adam and Eve sin and, and Satan is there in a snake form in the garden and God speaks to the snake and says, I I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this verse that sounds a little cryptic to us is an amazing promise of a plan of reconciliation for us. This verse is telling us that one day the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman would ultimately be who? Jesus would come and would crush the head of the snake, would do away with the one who had deceived humanity and the one who was rebelling against God. Ultimately, one day, the seed of the woman, Jesus, would come, and though he would be bruised, his heel would be bruised, he would be injured, there would be a death stroke given to Satan as his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. Again, this is a promise from long ago that Jesus would come. And so, Galatians tells us, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Several thousand years go by until it's the right time In God's estimation, in God's plan, it was the right time. So Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem, but he arrived at Bethlehem and began his earthly life at the fullness of time so that he might reconcile us to God. To see this in the words of John's gospel, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus has always been, and God has had this plan for our redemption from the beginning, and he sends Christ to accomplish that plan. Now, this reminds us that the road to Palm Sunday is not just the road down the Mount of Olives that Jesus rode down as he entered Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago. But the road of Palm Sunday actually goes back much further than that and much higher than the Mount of Olives. It goes all the way back to the throne room of God where Jesus began an intentional journey to the cross. Now, this journey began in heaven, but it continued on this earth, ultimately in this region right here, of Galilee, this region that is circled here. This is a map of Israel in the first century when Jesus was alive upon the earth. Galilee is this small region in the north. Anybody want to guess how, how much of Jesus' ministry, percent-wise, that the Gospels record takes place inside this little circle? 80%. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. your boldness. and You're very close. As much as 85%, as much as 85% of Jesus' ministry was up here in the region of Galilee. Now, that's significant because all the way down here in this bottom circle was Jerusalem. And where did Jesus go to be crucified? In 
Jerusalem. So Jesus had to get from here to there somehow. And what we see in Luke's gospel is that Jesus very intentionally headed to Jerusalem, knowing full well what awaited him there. Jesus made the journey from heaven to earth and from Galilee to Jerusalem, knowing that the cross awaited him there. Now, we see this throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus talked about this. His disciples missed it, but it wasn't because Jesus didn't say it. Again and again and again, Jesus was talking about the cross in the days leading up to his crucifixion. It says in Luke 9, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Where were the elders and the chief priests and the scribes? They were in what city? Jerusalem. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. Jesus understood what awaited him in Jerusalem. We see in Luke 9, 44. But while they were all marveling at everything Jesus was doing. In other words, they were saying, Jesus, these miracles you're doing are amazing. These sermons you're teaching are awesome. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. We, we see in 951, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go where? To go to Jerusalem. So while he's in the north, he very intentionally sets his focus, sets his plans on Jerusalem. He's headed there. Now, why Jerusalem? Well, because the, the leaders of Israel were there, but also Jerusalem has a history. There's a context. Jesus tells us that in Luke chapter 13. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from where? Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus has compassion on this city. It's the capital city, and yet he understands that by heading there, he is headed to the cross. Luke 17, 25, Jesus says to his disciples, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus understood what was awaiting him. It's no accident. And so we see in Luke chapter 18, he says, In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus was talking about it again and again. Jesus knew full well what was awaiting him. And so we get all the way to the Palm Sunday entrance, where Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives to approach the city of Jerusalem. And the disciples are, are joining in the crowd who are laying down cloaks and, cloaks and waving palm branches and celebrating. Why? Because of all the great things that Jesus had done. They were not remembering what Jesus said was going to happen when he got there. But Jesus knew. 
And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Oh, the moment. Jesus knew what awaited him there. That's why when he gets to Jerusalem, ultimately he retreats to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays this prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew where he was headed. Friends, Easter was no accident. It was an appointment from all time. Jesus understood what was at stake. He understood what was awaiting him. And he moves from heaven to earth, from Galilee to Jerusalem to keep the appointment on the cross. Now, why did he do such a thing? Why did he do such a thing? What would motivate him to take this journey? Did he just love pain? I mean, why would someone go there? The cross is the worst way that humans have invented to kill someone. Why would Jesus go there? Well, friends, Easter demonstrates God's love. In the cross and in Jesus' very intentional journey to the cross, we see revealed the love of God. And not just love in general, but his love for who? For you and for me. God's love is demonstrated through the events of Easter week. Now, where do we see that? Well, it's important for us to to remember that it was his love for us that motivated him to go to the cross. I want to share with you several verses from Ephesians chapter 1. It's it's kind of a long section, but it's worth reading because it, it talks about God's heart for us, what he desires for us, and how he accomplished that. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, first of all, friends, that is one heck of a sentence, isn't it? That is one long, beautiful sentence. But it speaks of God's heart for us. It speaks of his love for us. In love, he predestined us for what purpose? To be blessed, to have his grace lavished upon us. That we might have our sins forgiven, be reconciled through Jesus' death. And so that we might be let in on God's secrets. We might know who he is and what he's doing. Friends, God does all of this for us because this passage reminds us he loves us. And if that's too many words for you, let's look at it in maybe one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16. If you don't know any part of the Bible, you probably know John 3.16 or have heard it before. For God so what? For God so 
loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did Jesus come to die? Because he loves us. We could substitute our name for world. For God so loved AJ that he sent his son. For God so loved you that he sent his son. What an amazing, amazing truth. And then we see this very poignantly in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is demonstrated in his action. He doesn't just say he loves us, he loves us. He sent his son to die for us, not when we were perfect, not when we had it all together, but while we were still sinners, Christ came to die for us. What was God's motivation? What was Jesus' motivation to keep the appointment at the cross? It was his love for us that caused the plan of our salvation to be put together and caused Jesus to so diligently pursue it all the way through the cross and the empty tomb. It was his love for us. But we might want to ask a question. Well, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? I mean, yeah, we get it. He loves us, but why did he have to die? Why do we have crosses in rooms, these symbols of of an execution in the ancient world? Why is it that that we we talk about this? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, in order to understand that, we need to look at a number of really key verses from the book of Romans. One of those verses is Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who has sinned? All have sinned. All of us, every single one of us, have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. This is something that we have in common. Sometimes people who are are not a part of a church and have maybe not read a lot of the scripture, when they hear Christians talk about things like assurance of salvation and God loves us, they think that we are saying something to the effect of, we have lived such a good life that God loves us more than you. Friends, the reality is that what the Bible actually teaches is something far more beautiful than that. What the Bible teaches is that All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means that we believe we have sinned and you have sinned. So our reconciliation to God has nothing to do with our good performance. It has to do with something else that we'll see in just a moment. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this has a problem associated with it. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because there is sin, there is a, a payment that is due. And that payment that is due is death. And by that, we mean a separation from God. Because you have sinned, because I have sinned, a payment is due. Well, in order to to understand more than just this really bad news, we need to look at the rest of what these verses say. Because if, if all we saw were these two statements, none of us would have any hope. But the gospel is not bad news. The gospel is good news. So what is the good news? Well, the good news is by reading the rest of what these verses say. Beyond Romans 3.23, let's read all the way to verse 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These verses talk not only about our problem, but also about the solution that God has provided. Jesus died to make payment for our sins. This word propitiation is not a word we use very much, but it's a wonderful word. It talks about the payment that Jesus' death was for our sins. How is it that God can be both just and the justifier? It's because Jesus paid the price. You see, if God just excused our sin, he wouldn't be just. He might be a justifier, but he wouldn't be just. And if God just punished our sins in us, he would be just, but not a justifier. How is it that God is both just and a justifier? It is by sending his son to live a perfect life, to die in our place, paying the penalty that our sins deserve. And so that any who believe in Christ can have his death pay the penalty for our sins. That's what the rest of Romans 3 talks about. But what about the rest of Romans 6? We all know for the wages of sin is death, but the rest of that verse says what? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is, there is hope of eternal life that is found in Christ. If we are trusting in him as the payment for our sins, then eternal life is a gift that God has given us in Christ Jesus. This is why the gospel, friends, is such amazing news. But how is it that this good news of the gospel gets connected to my life? I mean, it may be true that, 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 that God is the just and the justifier, but is he the justifier of all or only of some? The verses seem to indicate that he's only the justifier of some. And so how do I get to be a part of the some? Well, God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. When he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How is it that we can be saved? Friends, we can be saved by Believing in our hearts that Jesus Christ is God's Son, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who died in our place. And by confessing him in prayer and belief and trust, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God forever. That's why Jesus had to die. He died because he loved us and wanted to reconcile us to God. Friends, I, I think about these verses often at Easter time, because some of you have heard me tell this story before, but back in, in Easter Sunday, 1990, I gathered in the fellowship hall of East Cross United Methodist Church in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And the youth pastor shared with us about the sinfulness that is connected to us. He talked about Romans 3.23. And then he put on the wall a, a transparency projection of Jesus on the cross. And he said, Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. 
And then he invited us to trust him with our lives. And I did. That night, right there in that room, I bowed my head and I prayed and confessed my sin to God. And I began this journey of following Christ in life. I tell you that today because I believe that there are people here today and people watching online who have been around the things of God. I mean, you're in a church. You're watching a service. But like me, for the first number of years of my life, never fully grasped why Jesus died. And if that's you today, know that as we end our service, I'll give you an opportunity to to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That this season might be always a reminder for you as well of beginning your journey of following Christ. So we remember today that Easter demonstrates God's love. But I want to take it one more step. And I want us to think about Palm Sunday specifically. And and as we think about Palm Sunday, I I want to place it in the context of, of really following Christ. Will we follow him? That's a question I want to let hang over us for just a moment. You know, when Jesus approached Jerusalem at Palm Sunday, and he began approaching the city, there were people that gathered around him. There were people that, that, were, that were following him into the city. And th- this shouldn't come as a surprise because when we look at the gospel accounts, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 20 different times in the gospels, Jesus gives this command. And the command is, follow me. Not believe in me one time, not throw your stick on the fire at camp, but really follow me. Jesus makes this request, this invitation to people again and again and again. We see it in Luke's gospel in places like Luke chapter 5, where he says to Matthew, also known as Levi, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And then we see him say in Luke chapter 9 to to a crowd, he says, and he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus often gives this statement of follow me and and it's relevant even for us today. I mean, yes, we we believe and we trust in Christ, but are we, we believing and trusting in him in a way that changes the direction of our lives? Rather than walking our own way, are we following him and his? Are we following him in obedience? Are we allowing his definitions of things to be our definitions of things? Are we allowing his word to provide direction for our lives? Are we following him? Well, in, in light of the Palm Sunday example, I, I think we need to remember that Palm Sunday actually has a warning. There's a warning associated with Palm Sunday, and that warning is this. We can sing about him and yet not follow him. Do you realize as Jesus is approaching the city, the people are gathering around him and they're waving palm branches and they're throwing their cloaks down and they're singing. Does anybody know what they're singing? They're singing Psalm 118. So not only are they singing, they're singing like good theology. I mean, this is God's word they're singing. I mean, they're they're not singing the new chorus. They're singing the old hymn. They're singing the right words. And yet the same group that is following Jesus into the city, the same group that is singing these songs, 
ultimately end up will also joining the chorus saying, crucify, crucify, just a few days later. See, it's, it's actually possible for us to sing about him and yet not follow him. And if that's true in the old day, then it's also true in today. It's possible that we can gather here today and we can, we can join our voices and sing these beautiful songs. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Crown him with many crowns. We can, we can sing those words, but when we sing those words, are we really willing to crown him Lord of all? Are we really willing to follow him with our own lives? See, sometimes it's easier for us to crown him Lord of heaven. Or, or to crown him Lord of even the earth, or to crown him the Lord of nations. You know, in these abstract theological terms and these big concepts, sometimes it's easier for us to crown him Lord out there, but not to crown him Lord in here. Dear friends, we can gather and we can sing, but when we sing, are we, are we really crowning him Lord of all or just all out there? Are we willing to crown him Lord of all of us? Friends, this this morning as we make this turn towards Easter Sunday, may we search our our souls, may we search our hearts, and and may we, we consider, is it possible that we are singing the song, but we are not crowning him Lord of all of us? Are we willing to follow him in faith. Now, this morning as we end, I want to give us an opportunity to respond in prayer. And, and I want to, to offer this prayer up in a couple of directions for, for, for all of us included. And, and in one of those directions I want to offer this prayer is for those who are here today who are convicted of their sin. You are realizing maybe for the first time that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there is a payment due that sin and that payment is death. And maybe for the first time you've come to grips with why Jesus came to die, not just because God loves us, but because God loved us so much that he made a way to reconcile us to himself. And as that truth has, 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 has hit your soul today, you want to respond in faith in Christ. If that's the case, I'm going to pray in just a moment and give us an opportunity to trust him and begin following him. But then for all of us, beyond that, I want to continue to pray and and ask for God's illumination of, as we examine our own lives, what are the areas where we may have sung that he is Lord out there, but we have restricted movement, at least in our thought, keeping him away from parts of us. What are the areas that we need to lay before him as we follow him today? So would you join me as we pray? Dear Lord, We are so very thankful for your tremendous love for us. Thank you that you knew, you knew, you knew, Lord, what was awaiting you in Jerusalem, and yet you came there. You could have stayed in heaven above, but you chose to come to earth. You could have stayed in Galilee and lived out your days, but you chose to go to Jerusalem. Because you loved us and knew that reconciliation was needed, knew that a payment was needed to be made, and you took your righteous, holy perfection, and you had allowed them to nail you to the cross so that that payment might be made 
so that we might be forgiven. Lord, thank you so much for that, that gift. Thank you for that gift. Lord, may all of us here, whether we have trusted you for years or whether in this moment you are stirring in our soul, may we confess with our mouths that you are Lord. And may we believe in our hearts that you have paid the penalty for our sins and have been resurrected from the dead. And Lord, in in those beliefs and in the work that you have done, we praise you for the forgiveness that you extend. And Lord, I pray for all of us that as we move from the moment of belief, I'm so thankful that you don't just add us as numbers, but you invite us to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith and the courage to follow you and that we would make you, crown you Lord of all, not just all out there, but all in here. And, Lord, that we would would follow you in obedience and faith in every area of our lives. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.